the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and uh, he's here underneath his umbrella in case there's a leak in the roof. Be a good trick since we're on the third floor of a four-story building. <laughs> I guess if it if it leaks into this floor, we got bigger problems, don't we? Well, in any event, uh, good to have you with us today. And uh, we don't normally start the show off with a weather report, but we seem to be a little bit in, in, in a break here, at least for a while. But there's more rain a-coming and lots of wind, too. So just an encouragement. Make sure the wipers are on, the headlights are on. Keep uh, plenty of distance before you and the car ahead of you. And uh, whatever you do, make sure you drive safe and get home safe to your loved ones and uh, help you keep uh, company along the way. We welcome you into the Thursday edition of Lifeline. And my, my, lots to talk about tonight. We've got the uh, Church of the Week coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Special guest will be joining us in hour number two. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later on in the uh, in the proceedings. But I want to start out tonight dealing with a subject matter that is is capturing more and more attention and uh, certainly creating a great deal of consternation amongst educators and parents. And you hear the phrase woke, woke education, woke curricula, things of this sort um, on a ever-increasing basis. I, it seems as if if there's 10 people in the room and you ask all 10, what does woke mean to you? You'll likely get 10 varied answers. And while I don't want to spend a lot of time on definitions today in the first hour, I do, however, want to talk a bit about um, what's the motivating factor behind all of this and the absolute utter irony that we'll we'll get into, no doubt, with my first guest tonight. The irony that um, in the 1960s, there was a very active and, might I add, successful campaign to withdraw every aspect of any sense of morality, moral compass. I mean, it, it, it needed to all be dispensed with. Anything that even hinted of a Judeo-Christian ethic and standards for conduct and the way we see and interact with each other all needed to go. Religion, out the door. Now here we sit, 60 years later, reaping the rewards of those efforts. And now we're going to try to kind of push it all back in, but not based on teaching people the value of others, not even based necessarily on an attempt to try and deal with the heart issues, but rather uh, rather creating an environment where our young children are forced to memorize a whole list of rules and do's and don'ts, thinking that somehow if we change their minds, we'll change their behaviors, ignoring the fact that at the end of the day, all of these issues related to how we 
see each other, how we engage with each other, how we value each other or fail to do so, and and at the core of, of so-called race relations is a heart matter. And yet we do everything but address the heart. Well, we're going to get to the heart of the matter. Sydney, uh, best-selling author and uh, reporter, speechwriter Joe Murray joins us on the program. Joe, I almost introduced you by saying syndicated talk show host. Maybe that was a little bit prophetic. I don't know. but <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Into another profession I go. Why not? <laughs> Listen, we're just we're going to expand that CV in every way we possibly can. But again, I, I, I thank you, Joe, for joining us today. And um, the kind My of pleasure. Uh, uses a springboard for our conversation. Let's talk about Elvis Presley, though I have to say... Yep. When when the uh, the new op-ed that's about to drop hit my desk, I thought, this has got to be a typo. Don't they mean Tom Jones? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Elvis was my first love. You know, Tom came along second, and uh, I'm back with Elvis now. So got got it. All right. And, and and nothing to be said of Engelbert Humperdinck. All right, great. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I apologize to listeners. as my grandmother used to call him. <laughs> there you go. That's a little inside, uh, inside baseball for listeners. But you have written, I, I think, a very compelling op-ed story talking about Elvis's career and not just his career but but his background and his roots and it is ironic that while at the time boy he was he was called a degenerate uh, you know even his his network television appearances were very heavily edited because oh my goodness he's moving his hips and you know certainly that pales in comparison to what we see on mainstream uh, uh, television these days but that said he he was a young man who grew up in a part of the country that, at the time, late 1940s, early 1950s, was was steeped in racism and Jim Crowism and all of the isms that you can imagine that create this massive racial divide, and yet he was someone having been raised in an extremely poor family in the Deep South that. Ironically, not only understood the 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 pangs of poverty, but also that of segregation and the way in which, in a very unique fashion, he was able to kind of bridge that divide uh, is pretty remarkable. And you know, for listeners, this is not uh, you know commentary on on his music, whether you love him or or, or don't, uh, in material. But the his ability to again bridge that divide is is quite remarkable and. You use that as a nice launching off piece uh, for ultimately not talking about the the revived interest in uh, in his career with uh, with the new film, uh, but but ultimately ultimately some of the lessons that we can learn. So with that as kind of the stage, walk us through your own exploration here and and where you see are the lessons that we can learn today of the way that this man was able to to overcome and overlook a lot of the so called racial differences even in the heat of of the moment uh, in the South in those years. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I lived in Tupelo, Mississippi for quite some time, and, and I need your listeners to understand, when I say the Presleys were poor, I'm talking so dirt poor that they couldn't even live in the white poor section of Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, so Elvis, at a very early age, uh, learned uh, that really the only color that mattered for him and the people around him were was green. 
because they were in the same boat. Now, I'm not saying that Elvis was treated the same way. That, that's not true. As you said, Jim Crow was there. But for all extents and purposes, Elvis uh, was part of the African-American culture in the sense that that's what was around him. The churches, uh, where you hear that gospel music coming out, and sort of the, the speakeasies and the pubs where you would hear that gritty blues, that is what he was exposed to at a very young age. And, you know, his father went to jail for writing a bad check, and it was just him and his mother uh, for a few years. And he, he relied on the community, and the community uh, helped him. So Elvis saw very early on that, you know, the color of the skin doesn't matter. Uh, you know, he, he was living what Martin Luther dream, uh, Martin Luther King was preaching back in the 60s, that it was the character. And, and that made a huge impression on him. And he carried that up to Memphis when he would visit frequently Beale Street. And I don't know if your listen, listeners are very familiar with it, but Beale Street is kind of the blues capital of the world. B.B. King was. And if you saw the movie, it was depicted pretty accurately uh, there. And, and I think one of the biggest things that we saw Elvis do was he was a conduit. He said, okay, you don't have rock and roll without that black rhythm and blues and gospel. That's correct. But you also don't have it with that white country. And if you look at the controversy around Elvis, yes, he was dancing. But I'm telling you, if you show his uh, rendition of Hound Dog on Milton Berle to a bunch of uh, middle school kids today, they're going to think it's nothing, uh, as opposed to what we see Sam Smith do at the Grammys. But Elvis's, the, the uproar against Elvis was not because really of his movement. Uh, it was because what his movement represented. And, and at that time, it was believed that that dancing was more of an Africanized black part of the culture kind of seeping into the, the white culture. And that is why you saw segregationists. Uh, come up in arms against them. Yeah, and that's an interesting and, point that you make. It you know it kind of goes yeah. part and parcel to many of today's. And I'm not I then want to be clear. I'm not advocating for a change in the law, even as we have it here in in California already. But it's interesting to note that the the early press for regulations of uncontrolled drug substances such as cocaine and and most notably marijuana that came about in the 1920s and 30s was not necessarily because uh, they wanted to kind of follow the steps of the of the temperance movement and prohibition of the 1920s, it was rather that it was seen being used largely by minority communities, and much of the effort was not to try to stem the tide of, of yeah. drug abuse. It was, it was, hey, with these rules in place, it gives us an opportunity to put people in jail quite easily. And that's true, and and I think that's what Elvis was representing. Because look, you know, you had and I like this fellow very much too. You had his counterpart. If he were going to completely sanitize rock and roll music, would have been Pat Boone, and you know, nobody was calling to to uh, pull Bat, Pat Boone off the the jukebox. And, but Elvis Elvis was that bridge, and I think you have to understand that when you have young black folks going to his concerts and young white folks, and they're segregated in the South, they're looking at each other and they're saying, "We like the music. We like the guy that's singing it." Uh, we like we like what we're we're hearing, but why are we separate? And it's not surprisingly that the the teeny boppers of the fifties became the freedom riders of the sixties, hmm. and, and that is that is why you saw that big push to to end Elvis because they realized that once you humanize the other side, you can't justify the prejudice. And and I think that gets lost in a lot of our, our post-Western debate over Elvis, that he was a cultural appropriator, that he stole black music. I mean, if you look at the people he came up with, B.B. King, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, they tell you he did not steal music. He created something of his own. Now, did he 
get some advantages for being white? Absolutely. Unfortunately, that was the time. But let's not kid ourselves. Martin Luther King's words might not have been heard by as many people as they were, but for Elvis breaking down those racial barriers in the 50s, and he paid a price for it. Um, You know, he got put into the army. Uh, That killed his mother, who he loved very much. And ever since then, he was never really the same after the death of his mother. And and so he did pay a price for it. And I think people kind of overlook it because they think of Elvis as the, the jumpsuits of the rhinestones and that of the 70s. But you have to remember, he was the guy breaking down a lot of doors in the 50s. And what I like to tell people is he didn't do it for that purpose. He was just being himself. He was being true to himself. And by doing that, he, he changed the world. And we all can do it. You don't have to be an activist to change the world. You just got to be you. Well, and the interesting thing, too, is that, you know, there's there's uh, people are familiar with the term crossover. And, and oftentimes we would see crossover going from, you know, uh, pop music into country music or vice versa. This, this was crossover that in many respects um, brought the beat of African-American music uh, more into the forefront and suddenly because it was being performed by a white guy became acceptable and 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 you're right there's a lot of talk about cultural appropriation of that but in the end of the day he 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 unwittingly uh paved a very important road that has allowed many of the artists the african-american artists of today to enjoy success because of the groundbreaking efforts of somebody like elvis presley Yeah, and I think people really forget those days of 56 and 57 and 58 when it was really a fever pitch and the segregationists in the South, you have to remember, he was a Southern boy. He was not a Northerner coming down doing this, so it was almost seen as as kind of treasonous to a certain degree. Oh, absolutely. That that you had a Southerner that was more than willing to break down the racial barriers, and and he, he there was a lot of heat that he took, and a lot of protest, and, and a lot of Klan activity that he had to deal with, uh, to the point where, like we said, he got drafted into the Army, and, and I think the movie does a pretty good job of, uh, I know it's somewhat fictionalized, but it was always ironic that Elvis, at the height of his career, all of a sudden gets a draft notice. And now he's over in Germany for two years. So, you know, he did pay a price. Now, of course, he came back and he was very successful and he he was not the rebellious rocker when he came back from Germany. But the fact is, he opened that door. And and for that reason, we had rock and roll develop. And I, and I think I need to point out that that is different than what's happening today. Rock and roll and music is being used today not to build bridges, but to tear them down. And if you look at what happened at the Grammys with that weird satanic music, I think Sam Smith, that was not done to connect anything. That was done to start tearing things down. So music is very powerful. It can bring people together, and it can also try to destroy things and tear us apart. And it's unfortunate, I think, that's where we are today in our culture, that music is being used to sort of tear us apart and and influence, influence us in ways that probably best not be be used. Yeah, good point. And and I think that helps to ideally sort of set the stage for the next portion of our discussion that uh, we're really going to kind of, uh, you know, bite into the meat of the of the topic when it comes to the issue of getting along um, race relations and and in particular and I I hinted at this in my opening remarks, that there was such a concerted effort to essentially uh, eradicate any moral education from the public classroom starting in the late 50s, early 1960s, that then set up a scenario to where we find ourselves today, and now we feel as if we can somehow mandate 
change. We can reprogram thinking. And while certainly you can put regulations in place and you can expose children to different schools of thought, but at the core, if the problem is really a heart issue, then quite frankly, what what are we doing here? If we're not if we're not educating to try and address the heart, um, then then ultimately, I think we're going to be an utter failure. And and this is what is so problematic with a lot of what we're seeing take place in the public schools today. I want to get into that part of our discussion tonight. Joe Murray, educator, attorney, best-selling author. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation with us is attorney and author Joe Murray. And uh, we've kind of launched the conversation related to uh, some people tuned in late and thought they're talking about Elvis Presley. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> no, uh, we're, we're, we're talking about some of the uh, the uh, pioneering work that he did, not just in music, but but what that meant in terms of also um crossing over a racial, a very significant racial divide. Um, there is, however, uh, you know, there's, there are racial divides that need to be overcome, and then there are racial divides that are seemingly being actively created these days. Let me tell you what I mean. In the 1960s, with the push towards um, removal of prayer from the public classroom, scripture from the public classroom, uh, later on even, the, the presence of things like the Ten Commandments, uh, considered to be just the ultimate in offensiveness because of somehow a violation of the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. We, we managed to successfully strip schools of all aspects of moral education based largely on the Judeo-Christian ethic, only to then suffer the consequences and then come back decades later and reintroduce a version of, of well, what I'll call a pseudo-morality the the thought that well we can change relations by changing minds or mandating behavior and Joe Murray, the one thing that I find very problematic with this and is it comes into many forms and definitions, whether it be critical race theory, wokeism, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, classes that are being taught now to, to create greater degrees of so-called sensitivity, that so much of it focuses on modification of, of behavior. None of it deals with what ultimately sort of guides our our behavior and our thought process and that is what goes on in our hearts you know you know i liken it craig you know saint thomas aquinas taught of the natural law and and equated that to our moral compass and we use that as we sought to find the eternal law which was god's mind and what i liken what's happening in the schools today is as they're taking a magnet and putting it right against the compass so the compass goes screwy and people are lost so there, you can't change their heart because I, I truly believe, and, and, and St. Thomas Aquinas wrote about this, that it didn't matter where you are in the world, whether you were born a, you know, a Hindu or a Muslim or, or Shinto or what have you, we were all born with that natural law etched onto our heart. So we all had that innate moral compass that would lead us to God. And and what we what the people today that are crafting policy, that are doing policy, they know that they can't at the core um, take that compass away. 
but they can make it very hard to read. And that's what we see here with what's going on. And, and when I say this, I, you, you have to be compassionate and you have to, you know, have that servant's heart when it comes to all different types of people and, and try to resist judgment, you know, that we with the sin cast that first stone. But what we are conditioning kids to do today to to basically deny the truth and, and, and embrace the false is scary. We do it all the time. Uh, we do it when it comes to pronouns. Uh, pronouns are not subjective. Okay, you cannot decide to be a she if you're a he. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying that that is the natural law. That is how we are made. And yet you say that, and if you speak up, the kids feel ostracized. So they either stay quiet or they pretend and feign acceptance of it. And it's this attempt to mess with that natural law and to mess with our moral compass that is then leading to a lot of these disruptions. Because when you're not leading or going towards something that is bigger than you, then you, again, get lost. And people who are lost tend not to do the best things. So it's it's not surprising in today's age where we have told children to focus on someone's identity and not their individuality, who they are as an individual. You go to Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, and yesterday the news was that uh, there were some, it's a heavily black school, and they wrote, you better hire some more black teachers or the white ones won't be here much longer. Wow. You know, it's 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 scary that we have conditioned kids to see each other through the prism of not here is, you know, John Q. Public or Jane Q. Public, you know, a great person. But, OK, that's a white cis. I don't even know what this is when they do put that in front of gender. I have no idea what that means anyway. But it's like we have all these different labels that attach to a person and those labels cloak the individual. And, and it seems like we've gone backwards. You know, that's what we fought for all these years. That's why I became a lawyer was to fight for civil rights so we wouldn't see people by their label but to see them for who they are. But what's going on in the schools is we're reverting back to labels. And why? Because it will further remove us from that Judeo-Christian culture, that core of who we are as a country. That's the one thing that is keeping us anchored. And once that's forever removed, Craig, you and I both know what happens. Well, and I think part of the part of the problem here too, Joe, is that there there is, uh, albeit a very awkward, but nevertheless, there is a acknowledgement that we've got some serious, deep rooted problems, yeah. and that we're not getting along. And so, you know, they're thinking, well, it starts at an early age, and uh, you know, racism is generally taught. So let's see if we can't go in and counteract a lot of this at a very early age. And so, some of these efforts are going down to younger. And younger. In fact, when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about a case of what's happened right here in the Bay Area in Cupertino. But my, my point is that while there's an acknowledgement that there is a growing problem here, uh, now now the effort, instead of coming back and saying, wow, you know, we need, kind of need to, to reverse the, the trajectory here. We've made some mistakes years ago. Now we need to revisit all of that. You know, in, in, instead, we're, we're focusing more and more on on the divide and I can see slowly as you look at this through the prism of scripture I can see slowly where we're going to come to the point where whose story is more dramatic who suffered more who went through a more difficult time and not only creating a broader divide between white America and all other racial groups but even amongst racial groups and it's all because we think we can uh, you know pull a few pages out of the history books and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be teaching history absolutely Absolutely. 
But when, when at the end of the day, we think that if we can indoctrinate, we can change behavior, then clearly we've, we've missed the mark big time. And I think instead of addressing and correcting a problem, we're simply going to exacerbate it over the long haul. With us tonight is constitutional lawyer, best-selling author Joe Murray. When we come back, we'll talk about an example right here in the San Francisco Bay Area that uh, I think will set you back on your heels. I'm Craig Roberts, along with Joe Murray, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation tonight with uh, best-selling author and constitutional lawyer Joe Murray. We've been uh, talking about the the broader issue of um, race relations as it really comes down to what's going on in, in the so-called uh, um, critical race theory education or, or woke teaching. And, you know, they're, they're, everybody seems to have a different definition of what these things mean. And from uh, district to district or from zone of the country to a different area of the country, different approaches to all of this. But let me give you one example that I think helps to demonstrate just how broken this approach is. Here in the Bay Area, Cupertino, third graders, right? What are we talking? Third graders, eight, nine years old, Joe, something like that, I think. Um, Meyer Holtz Elementary School, third graders were required to deconstruct their racial identities and then rank themselves according to their power and privilege. Why does this sound a lot like there's four of you in the rowboat and the boat can only easily accommodate the weight of three of you? Who gets tossed overboard? And then they go through the list. The blind guy, the one that has the leg problem, you know, so on and so yeah. forth. <laughs> and we're, 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 we're in here and we're going to get a nice, big, healthy dose of moral relativism. So uh, rank themselves according to their power and privilege and then go on to help the students understand that they live in a dominant culture of, quote, white middle class cisgender, educated, able-bodied Christian English speakers who, according to the lesson, quote, created and maintained the culture in order to hold power and stay in power. And then students are asked to create an identity map which requires them to list their race, class, gender, religion, family structure, etc. And then students are asked to deconstruct these intersectional identities and circle the identities that hold power and privilege. Oh, my. I mean, beyond the fact that I don't know that most 12th graders could comprehend all of that, let alone a third grader. But it seems to me that what we're trying to do is broaden the divide, do the best that we can to create, uh, you know, a, a, a greater sense of alienation between the races you know, if we want to talk about holding each other accountable for the sins of the past, then what we really need to do is to have a long, lengthy discussion about our anger and angst at Adam and Eve. Because after all, they got the ball rolling on this mess in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And, and you know what, Craig, I'm going to be honest. The point of that lesson is not to have these kids completely understand what they're doing. It's to introduce them to that terminology so that terminology becomes their norm. That becomes their vernacular. So as they progress through the public school system, those words will be shaped by their fourth grade, their fifth grade, their sixth grade, their seventh grade. And by the time they reach 12th and have graduated, they have been conditioned to those words and they don't they don't question it because they've never been taught
taught to question it. That has been taught to be the truth. And and it goes back to what is the end game now? You're right, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and I would say even into the 90s, the end game was reconciliation. Let's reconcil- reconcile the fact that we did have the sins of the past and we need to move forward with an understanding of what we did, but also an understanding of what we can be. But somewhere around the 2000s, it became not about reconciliation, but retribution. This wasn't about you know moving on to try to build a great society. It was about tearing down a society and to punish those people who were perceived to be those that were the perpetrators. The problem is, though, nobody living today was responsible for slavery. And and, and I'm not saying that it didn't exist because it did. But if we really want to talk about slavery, why don't we ever talk about the Arab connection? They're the one that got the ball rolling. It was not the Europeans who went to Africa and decided to pick slaves up. It was the Arabs who could not hold Muslim slaves. So considering the North Africans were Muslim, they would go raid Central Africa to bring the slaves up to trade to the Arab merchants. The Portuguese got involved when they finally got there in the 1400s. But I'm going to tell you something, Craig. The Europeans were the first to end the practice. It did not officially end in Saudi Arabia, I'm not mistaken, until the 1960s. It was officially taken off the books. So nobody ever talks about the Arab role in the slave trade. Because if we really want to talk about reparations, I think you go there, they got bigger pockets because, you know, they're sitting on all that oil now and <laughs> OPEC keeps raising that barrel, so <laughs> might as well spread the wealth. So it, it's insane because that's the problem with our history today. We don't want to teach the complete history, and, and both sides are guilty of this, by the way. Everybody wants to cherry pick what should and should not be taught when we should just sit down and teach the truth but teach it in a way that we let these kids come up with their own decision well, you know they might not come up with the right decision but that's okay they're allowed to interpret the facts as they see them and Joe, you know, long-time listeners to this program know that I am an avid fan of history. I always have been. Um, and, and history needs to be taught. And there are many valuable lessons that, sadly, we even tend to repeat to these days because we forget our history. So, you know, I, I am the first to argue that it ought to be, you know, part of the core competency of every student that graduates from high school to at least understand the basics of, of who we are and where we came from. The problem, I think, is that right now, because there is so much to be gained by it, we, we want to talk about history and then stay rooted in the past. And we want to talk about the sins of the past ages. Well, number one, Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But moreover, when you continue to be stuck in the past and trying to stir up a sense of of, of, of guilt and shame amongst people today for the sins of their fathers and great-grandfathers, the problem is we never have a chance to address then the way we're behaving in the moment because we're stuck in the past and trying to help change hearts and attitudes in the future. You know, I, I'm reminded as much as we talk about the way in which the Judeo-Christian ethic has been um, exercised from the public classroom and, uh, you know, I always thought it a bit uh, comedic when there would be some uh, frustration by teachers that would say things like, well, you know, if students were only more respectful or if they were were less violent and things of this sort. And I thought, gee, if there was only, I don't know, maybe a a list of the do's and don'ts, maybe you could call it the ten suggestions, the top ten, 
you know, like Dave Letterman had his top 10 list. You could come up with a list of, of ideas or thoughts about behavior. And if students could be reminded of that every, wow, what a great idea that would be. And I suppose if you couched it in those terms, they'd probably all vote for it. Then when you said, and by the way, the original is called the Ten Commandments comes straight out of Scripture, they'd you know, immediately run around like their hair is caught on fire. But I'm reminded of Jeremiah 17, 9. As much as we're trying to modify thinking and modify behavior, I think, Joe, that in spite of even the best efforts, be it those that have you know malintent or those with the most altruistic motivations, doesn't Jeremiah 17.9 tell us it's the heart that's deceitful above all things? And get this, desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. Now, if we're about trying to reprogram minds as opposed to positively influence young hearts in the right direction, I think what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for not a better environment in which we can you know, share the planet together, so to speak, but rather creating the, the, the thems and the theirs and uh, literally dividing us deeper because we want to get in the past and stay in the past. Well, and, and that's the point. They they want to tear it down. They want to reimagine it. But in order to reimagine it, you've got to destroy it. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. I mean, you look at some of the absurdity that we're seeing. Uh, and, and I mean, we have Jill Biden just the other day, on International Women's Day, giving the award to a biological male. I mean, this to me, is that not the, the biggest <laughs> form of cultural appropriation? Yeah, I'll right say. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 and again, this is nothing you know, ill-hearted towards the transgender community. That's fine. We all have our crosses to bear. But, you know, I remember I was in a cornfield in Iowa and I was driving with Pat Buchanan. That's when I was working with him back in in, in 1999. It was a very hot summer outside Des Moines, Iowa. And, and we were talking and he, I'll never forget it. He said to me, he says, the issue that we have today is that most people are tolerant people and they want to be good people and they're going to accept people uh, excuse me they're going to tolerate people but he says these folks don't want tolerance they don't want coexistence they want unconditional acceptance and if that means that they are going to make you rethink your thoughts in order to make them feel good that's what's going to happen and lo and behold 20 years later here we are you cannot be a person who says look I will tolerate your right to dress as you want or to live as you want, but I'm not going to accept it as a good way of life. You say that today, and you are labeled homophobic, you are labeled bigot, you are labeled transphobic, and that's what it is. It was never about a peaceful coexistence. It was about a destruction of the old ways. And, and we've seen this many times in history where, you know, whether it be the Reformation, where it was the old ways of the Catholic Church or the old ways of the Middle Ages, we've seen this over and over again. How you destroy a country is not usually from the outside. It's the rot that begins inside. And, and you do that by by basically saying what was once right is now wrong. And, and that's kind of where we are today. And, and I think, again, uh, yes, we need to adequately and accurately describe and explain history to children. But at the end of the day, you know, we got to make sure that the end result, that the, the final goal here is a coming together, not a 
pulling us apart by pitting us against each other. And there seems to be an awful lot of that. And, you know, listen, you you talk about creating degrees of angst. I had a friend the other day, this came up in conversation, and we were talking about some of the, the history of America, and specifically here in California. It's like, well, who robbed what from whom first? I mean, the Native Americans, yeah. but then, of course, you had the presence of the Mexicans here, and then along came the British, and it seemed like the, the, the next one robbed from the one before, and and at the end of the day, you find out that, you know, even before we came anywhere near these shores, there was infighting going on. It's like, well, you know, it, it's, it's the age-old issue, sin, and... You know, uh, when when we're unregenerate, why should we be surprised when when we behave that way and behave that way towards each other? And you know, sadly, we're in the battle of of you know trying to fight systems of oppression. Um, but you know, th- those systems of oppression find their 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 strength and their genesis in the heart. And if we're not doing things to train up a child that impacts the heart. Then listen, we're going to simply continue to reap this no matter how many lessons you give of CRT in the local classroom. Take a time out. We'll come back with more. Joe Murray and his thoughts on this topic. I'm Craig Roberts. You're listening to Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with best-selling author and attorney Joe Murray, taking a look at the impact, um, the, the 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 slow, um, methodic influence of so-called wokeness that takes place in a lot of forms, a lot of different definitions of it out there. But at the end of the day, with a couple of examples we've already shared with you tonight on the program, we can see that there there is an effort to sort of rewrite the books and. And, and and definitely to modify behavior. Now you know the, the the notion of wanting to bring people together and to um, nullify the impact of racism that uh, many of us were were raised with. Sadly, um, you know I, I I think the desire to want to bring people together is something that's 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 laudable and should be encouraged. The problem with this approach is. Um, it it doesn't set up means by which me we might come together or cross over as we were talking about the example of Elvis Presley earlier in the program, but rather it really ca- it creates very very clear lines of of, of battle, um, and you know, <laughs> is it any wonder then that this is building anger and angst? And Joe, I've got to believe that. And the final results is going to have just the opposite effect of what they're trying to do. Instead of bringing people together, it's going to tear people further apart. I guess my question for you is, as we have acknowledged here that so much of this is a heart issue, um, where do you see this ultimately headed? And most importantly, parents are concerned about it, and they go to a school board meeting, they raise their concerns, and then they get you know yelled at for being racist or bigots or out of touch or whatever the case might be. How do we get a collective focus on the, the need to address this at the heart level? 
Well, I think what's going to happen is first you have to hit it at the wallet level, which means that uh, you need to be able to do what many of the states are doing, especially the red states, which are increasing the ability for students to have school choice. Uh, taxpayer dollars are that of the taxpayers, and the schools do, are not entitled to those dollars just because people live within their jurisdiction. So let the parents take their kids out of these schools that are pushing this ideology and let these schools go broke. Uh, you know, you know, woke will make you go broke. Uh, that's what I truly believe at the end of the day. So once that happens, we, we, we can then maybe rethink the more, more compassionate, heartfelt, centered approach to teaching history. Because the thing is, Craig, there's only a handful of people out there that want to teach this in order to bring people together. If you look at what's being taught, if you look at the CRT curriculum, if you look at how they deliberately divide people and you look at how they demonize folks, especially the white Christian-centered folks. It's meant to make them the enemy. And, and I'll give you a, a prime example. You, you said it yourself. You know, hum, oppression is not something that is, is unique to the white European Christian. You can't tell me that the that the tribes of Mexico, especially those under the Aztecs, were not happy to see Hernan Cortez come their way because, believe you me, they didn't want the Aztecs <laughs> because the Aztecs would sacrifice them on a daily basis. So, yes, oppression is nothing new, but it, it is is something that is here, and it's how we deal with the lessons from it. And this is why I think we still have a long way to go. We talked about the origins of slavery. The origins of slavery was not from the Europeans. It was from the Arabs. But a poll that came out roughly right before COVID said that a vast majority, if I'm not mistaken, it was 83% of college students believed that the Europeans and Americans created slavery. And and that, unfortunately, is what I think they're trying to do with this. If you can make the people hate the land they live in, then the land they live in is no more, and then you can rebuild it in the image that you want. And if you want to know what they want, look at what they're doing. You know, and it's, and it's interesting that you mention that. It, it takes me back to an experience that I had in one of my trips to the African continent, um, and we were talking with uh, some local church leaders there, and in the course of conversation, they talked about, you know, amongst many of their initiatives, they were trying to um, combat both the impact of the spread of, his, of of radical Islam to the southern part of the continent and, and dealing with slavery. And there were a couple and said, what, excuse me? And I said, yeah, dealing with slavery. What are you talking about? Well, you know, and started mentioning this tribe and this country coming over in here and kidnapping people and putting them into slavery. So wait a minute. This is, you know, this is probably 10 years ago. So it's, this is 2010. What are you talking about? You know, that that sense of, again, the, 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 the inhumanity of man toward man continues to this very day. And for the person who would think, well, this is singularly something done, you know, an, an evil perpetrator traded by by Europeans on on African Americans, I got news for you. There was an example that shocked a number in our group saying, wait a minute, it's going on today and yep. this was black on black slavery on the continent of Africa, I'm not talking about 300, 500 years ago. I'm talking about this was happening and maybe happening to this day still, I don't know. Ten years ago, it was happening. It was one of the biggest challenges that the church was trying to fight. Yeah, you're right. If you look at what goes on in Sudan and Ethiopia and these places where you have this, you, you still have this going on right now. But nobody wants to talk about what's going on right now because we're too busy 
still lamenting about what happened 200 years ago, which is important and we need to deal with. But if we are so blinded by the past that we can't see the present, then then what good are we? Right? What good are we? What are we learning? And, and the fact is we're not learning anything. And that is the problem with what's going on today. This is not about learning. It's about chaos. Well, and, and, we're, and, and we're, we're, t- we're teaching our kids to hate each other. That's right. That's right. We, it's an us versus them. And then, you not, and this is the worst part, Craig, we're not only teaching our kids to hate each other, but we're teaching some kids, mainly white kids, to hate themselves. And just because they are white. And that is that implicit bias, and that is all of that stuff that you're telling seven, eight, nine-year-olds that you're white, so you are privileged, so therefore you should feel bad about yourself because of something you have no control over. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry. And that's the, the evil of it. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I come back that we are all created by and in the very likeness and image of God, very God himself. And if we don't deal with the core true problem here, which we understand scripturally to be the heart, then all this other stuff that we're doing... Yeah, it's just kind of like moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic. And and sadly, the ones that are going to be sinking are uh, future generations. Joe Murray, always uh, great to spend some time with you. And uh, thank you for the uh, the insights. Um, I, I never would have thought we would have started the program with a, a spiritual exegesis on, on uh, Elvis Presley. But <laughs> I, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one, my friend. You too. There is uh, Joe Murray for you here. Here on a Thursday evening. All right, we're uh, we're shaking up. We're going to do more of that shaking up for you coming up right around the corner. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.